All right, if you have your Bibles, please open up to the book of Colossians, chapter 1. If you're using the Bibles that we provided for you, that's on page 983. So page 983 in the Bibles that we provided for you here this morning. Uh, many of you know as a church plant that uh, we have really, in these early days, of course, you know, limited resources and we're just taking baby steps as a church. And so uh, not only do we, you know, have to rent a place like Spring Step, which is a great provision from God, and we're very thankful and excited about this, but the life of a, of a, of a, of a pastor of a church plant is somewhat, you know, exciting and unpredictable. So I often find myself when not working from home or out meeting with people and, and, and doing the different things that I have to do uh, and get to do, then I often find that my office is a local coffee shop. Maybe Starbucks or Mystic Coffee Roasters right here in Medford Square. Um, and, and one thing that I noticed this time of year, of course, is students coming in and busting out their mega volume books because it's time to hit the books, right? It is time to, to get class, classes in session. And one aspect that we all either love about the semester or we loved way back when were exams, right? I mean, everyone, everyone loves exams, right? I mean, this is, this is, I mean, quizzes, midterms, final exams, bar exams, board exams. We love exams. And I, uh, maybe we don't love exams. I tell you what, in fact, this is just kind of, this is just, I have to wrestle with this and fight to not um, have this sense of joy when I, because I, I was in school for 20, like, yeah, I was 24 years. I just, finished the 23rd grade uh, a little more than a year ago. And so I get this sense of satisfaction whenever I see someone typing a paper or you know, preparing for an exam, just thinking, man, I am done with that. Um, I try not to go up and say that to them at the time, but that's what I'm thinking on the inside. Like, man, I'm done. Thank you, Lord. I'm no longer going to be a student um, unless something really, 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 really strange happened. So uh, th this idea of taking exams in a semester, this is something that every college student, every grad student, even every high school or middle school or elementary school student faces while they are in school. I want to pose to you this morning is uh, something that we need to take exams ourselves consistently in our life. Paul would write to Corinthians, he would say, examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. And so this morning, as we get going into this text, I want to encourage you to examine yourself. Examine your life. Take a hard look at your life. Look into the spiritual mirror of your life, and I want you to really consider what you see there. If, if, the, if, if your life was a story, what would the last chapter that's just been written, the, the last six to 12 months, what would, what would that story, how would that story read? See, we need to take a hard look at our life. Why? Because if we're being honest, there's probably a great chance that we would say, I mean, you know what, even for those of us who really desire to live for God, there would probably be many weeks out of those months, perhaps months out of this year, that we would say, man, I was missing something. I didn't live my life for God in the way that He willed for me to live it. And we sometimes lack this sense of spiritual vitality in the Christian life. 
And what Paul is going to do this morning when he writes this letter to the Colossians is that he is going to really leave them and consequently leave us without excuse. Why? Because Christ is in us. And there are inexhaustible resources for the believer to live the life that God has called us to live for His glory. So that's what we're going to see in Colossians chapter 1, verses 24 down through chapter 2 and verse 5. And so uh, the the, the key idea that I want us to, to really consider this morning is this, is that Christ, the hope of glory, and the fountain of all wisdom dwells in His people for their progress in the faith. Christ, the hope of glory and fountain of all wisdom, dwells in his people for their progress in the faith. And this is what we see here in the opening verses. I want to read these first few verses, verses 24 through 27 again, as we begin to think on what is this idea of the supremacy of Christ in you? Supremacy of Christ in you. Paul writes in verse 24 of chapter 1, Now I rejoice in my sufferings, For your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery, hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So what I want to do is we study through these verses uh, in Colossians. I want to give us three main encouragements. And we're going to spend most of our time on this first encouragement exhortation this morning. And And that is this, that we should marvel at the mystery of Christ in you. Marvel at this mystery, Christ in you. And Paul begins this this section by teaching us that this mystery is worth suffering for. Did you notice how he opened the the, the passage? He says that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. And in his flesh, he is filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. So for the apostle Paul, he was willing to suffer, but not only to suffer, consider this, he was willing and able to rejoice in his suffering for the sake of Christ and for the sake of Christ's church. Those who know Christ, love Christ, follow Christ, and all those who would love Christ and follow Christ. And this is what we see in the early church. If we read the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, it says that after the the Christians were beaten and commanded to never speak again in the name of Christ, it says that they went away rejoicing. Why? Because they were counted worthy of suffering for the name of Christ. And so so Paul says, look, I'm willing to suffer. And not only that, I'm, I'm, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings for Christ and his people. He had a great resolve to suffer for the advance of the gospel. But now we ask this question. What on earth does Paul mean when he says, and I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his church? I mean, this is kind of an an odd way to put it, Paul. What, What do you mean? Is there anything lacking in Christ's afflictions? 
Well, this word affliction is never used to refer to the, to the once for all sacrifice Jesus made on the cross in the New Testament. So we can be confident, both biblically and theologically, that there is nothing deficient in the sacrifice of Christ on the cross for our sin. Nothing deficient, nothing lacking. As the hymn writer put it, full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah, what a savior. And so he's not speaking of anything that's deficient in the sacrifice of Christ. And so what does he, what does he mean by this? I believe what he means is, is that uh, what is lacking in Christ's afflictions are the suffering of his people. You say, how, how do you get there? Well, Jesus so identifies with his people, okay? And we're gonna see this again and again and again. He so identifies with his people that he shares in their suffering. He said, prove it. Well, there was this man named Saul. And Saul was a good Jew. In fact, he was a great Jew. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. If, if anyone lived a life that appeared to be devoted to God, then it was the, this man named Saul. And Saul even was so zealous for God that when these people came along and said, hey, I follow Jesus. Jesus is the Messiah. Saul wanted to not only reject those people, but he wanted to persecute those people. And Saul was on one of his missions of persecution, traveling from Jerusalem to Damascus, and Jesus meets him on the road. And he says to him, Saul, Saul, with this blinding light, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute them? That's not what Jesus says, is it? Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me to mess with Christ's people is to mess with Jesus himself. And so Paul, in his sufferings, in his, he's writing this letter from prison, in all of his sufferings for Christ, He's saying, I'm filling up what's lacking in Christ's affliction. There's nothing deficient in the sacrifice of Christ, but there is still suffering that Christ's people will face, as Jesus told us there would be. And so this is a beautiful thing here that Jesus so identifies with his people that when we suffer, he identifies with our suffering. This is as if he is suffering himself. And this was Paul's life. I mean, he was so committed to this. He died daily for the sake of the gospel. And he was willing to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. He would put it this way in 2 Corinthians 4. Check it out here. He says that, I can't see it. Let me read it here on my notes. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that his life also may be revealed in our mortal bodies. So then, death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. So Paul says we always carry around the death of Christ. We are always willing and we die daily to ourselves that Christ might be known and magnified and that these people might experience life in him. And so why would Paul be willing to suffer 
for the sake of the advance of the gospel, it's because the advance of the gospel, this mystery that he proclaimed to people was far more valuable than anything else in his life, even his own life. And so the mystery of Christ is worth suffering for. But then also we come to see that this mystery is made known through the word. Look at, look at verses 25 and 26 again. Paul says that uh, he had become a minister of the church according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. Uh, I just want to make a couple of observations here about verses 25 and 26. Uh, number one, this mystery is no longer a mystery. All right, think about this. This, mystery, this word mystery is, is somewhat confusing because of our contemporary usage. When we think mystery, mystery, we think riddles, right? Or a series of clues that need to be solved. Perhaps you think of your favorite mystery detective, perhaps Sherlock Holmes, or maybe my personal favorite, Inspector Gadget. Anybody with me on that? Inspector Gadget? Pretty, pretty cool uh, character there. Um, Paul, Paul doesn't have that in mind here in the text. He, he actually explains it for us. Uh, this, this idea of, of mystery gets at the truth about God and his plan of salvation that had remained hidden in the past but was now revealed or made known. It is if the, the, the curtain on the stage has been lifted and we have a clear picture of all the actors in the play. This is what he says in verse 26, where he says, this mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. So this mystery is no longer a mystery. It's revealed. And what exactly is this mystery it is the message of Christ the mystery is the message and so Paul says this mystery is made known how by people speaking it to other people and Paul gave his life to this he says that he has this stewardship from God is this responsibility to fulfill his assignment from God to manage these responsibilities well and so I want to ask you this morning do you have the stewardship from God to make the word of God fully known as Paul had this stewardship from God? I want to encourage you that this task, this assignment is not just for people like me or other leaders or super, super disciples, people who kind of appear to have it all together. I mean, this is for all of us, all of us who are followers of Christ. We have the privilege to make known the mystery of the gospel. And so we at Redemption Hill want to really encourage one another to be praying for people in our life that we know don't know Jesus as he's revealed in the pages of the Bible. We want to pray for them, and we even want to go a step further than that. We want to share Christ with them. And you say, that freaks me out. I don't want to do that. I'm, I'm scared. It's going to be awkward. Well, let's consider this. 
the most unloving thing that we could do for someone we know is fail to share the gospel with them. Even skeptics get this. Even the most hardcore atheists in their right mind get this. I want to read you a, a, a quote. This is actually, you can find this YouTube video from a man named Penn Gillette. You may have heard of the Penn and Teller show. It's a, it's a, a show on the Vegas Strip. And he is a, a renowned atheist. In fact, he just published a book last month titled God No. So he, is, he has not changed his mind on this yet. But before he even penned this book, he tells of this experience where someone came up to him after a show and offered him a Bible and just left his contact information in there and basically said, I'd love for you to really consider this. And we would think that this, this atheist, who's pretty adamant about his atheism, would make fun of this Christian, right? Would find opportunity to, to write blogs and, and tell stories about how ridiculous this moment was. But in fact, he said, you know what? I would respect nothing else than what this man did. Listen, listen to this. In, in, in referring to Christians not sharing their faith, this is what Pendulette says. He says, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell and not get, getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, and atheists who think that people shouldn't proselytize, just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believe beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. See, people get the need, the sense of urgency that we should have. Yes, when we share Christ, we should do so humbly. We should do so as those who really understand the gospel. The gospel shows us that we don't have it all together ourselves, right? But it is the most loving thing that we can do to not only pray for people to come to Christ, but how do they come to Christ? They have to hear the mystery made known through our words that are represented in God's word. And so here at Redemption Hill, if you're a part of Redemption Hill, or even this is a great suggestion, if you're just visiting with us and we never see you again, here's a challenge for all of us. Ask God to show you three to five people in your life that you know need Christ. It may be friends. It may be family. It may be coworkers. It may be the person that you buy a cup of coffee from every other day. And show, ask God to show you who those people are and begin praying for them and then go out and live your life with gospel intentionality and, and, and begin to share Christ with those people. This is what God has called us to do. To share the mystery of the gospel. And what is this mystery? Well, Paul tells us in verse 27, 
he says this to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery what's the mystery Paul Christ in you the hope of glory so let me just say we're going to camp out here I mean, this is one of those verses in the Bible that we just need to know. We need to know it in our minds, in our hearts. We need to live it out day by day by day by day by day. Paul says here to them, who is them? It's the saints at the end of verse 26. To, to the saints, God chose to make known. I mean, he, he willed it. He desired to unveil this reality, and he is still doing so. To make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Now, let's just pause and let me encourage us to let these words fall on our heart. Paul says, how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery. Paul could have said, I want to make known how great is the mystery. He could have said, I want to make known the riches of of this mystery. He could have said, I, I want to make known the glory of this mystery. Or he could even take it a step further than that. I want to make known how great are the riches of this mystery. But Paul says, how great is the, are the riches of the glory of this mystery. I mean, he is just stacking terms, trying to muster as much emphasis as he possibly can so that we don't miss the, the gravity and the weight of his words here in verse 27. When he says, how great are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is what? It's Christ in you. Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. I mean, th does this kind of make you stagger a bit? I mean, this should just give us pause. I mean, Paul, are you serious? Christ in me? Christ in you? This is exactly what Paul says. I mean, often Paul will talk about how the, the believer is in Christ. But there are times when he makes it even more explicit and he says, Christ is in you if you know him and have been saved by his grace. And so let's just drill down on this idea of Christ in us. I want to give us just a few thoughts that will hopefully maybe put some practical handles on what this means that Christ is in us. And the first one is this, Christ dwells in his people by faith. Christ dwells in his people by faith. So this isn't, this isn't Christ among you, it's Christ in you. It's not even Christ with you, it's Christ in you. Paul writes a little letter to the, to the, to the Romans, it's not actually so little, and uh, and he says in chapter 8, verses 9 through 11, listen to this language. This helps us understand how, he does, how Christ dwells in us. He says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if, the, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. And so Christ is in us if we are in Christ. If we have confessed Jesus is Lord, 
Jesus is God. Jesus is king. Not only over all things, but even over my life. We've repented of living for ourselves and turned and said, Jesus, I am embracing you as the Lord of my life, which is the command for every person on the planet to follow Christ, to return and worship God when we once did not worship him and live for ourselves. So if this is true for you, Paul says Christ is in you. How is he in you? He's in you by his spirit dwelling in you. And so sometimes people want just enough of Jesus to kind of treat him as a good luck charm. You know, we need Jesus when, you know, he can come through for us in the clutch. And that Jesus simply does not exist. The Jesus of Colossians 1.27 is the Jesus who dwells in us and he reigns in us. He lives in us so that we might live for him. He, Paul here goes on to, to, to say in Galatians 2.20, this is, this is such a huge verse. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ. Well, what on earth does that mean, Paul? Well, this is what it means. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So what Paul says here is that I have been crucified with Christ. Those who belong to Christ have been literally crucified with him, and now they no longer live for themselves. Their life is not their own. And to, to live now for Jesus is to live by faith. It's this constant dependence, this constant trusting in Christ, this constant leaning on him for our progress in the faith. And so if Christ dwells in us by faith, then we must constantly come to him and say, Jesus, you are enough. You are sufficient. I'm trusting in you. In this situation, for this day, I am trusting in you, leaning on you, resting in you, because you are enough for me. Not only that, uh, we see Christ dwells in his people by faith, but, but I want us to think about this, and this might come as kind of a shock to you. You cannot live the Christian life. You can't. None of us can live the Christian life apart from Christ. And so this, this was a major uh, revolution in my progress as a believer when I came to understand this truth. It was my first year of college that I really started to understand grace in a way that it's not just grace that saves me and gives me life in Christ and eternal life, but it's grace that enables me to live each day for Jesus. You see, I had this busted view of Jesus' work in my life because I had this picture that it was kind of like Jesus was my tag team partner, all right? I know we have some closet WWF fans in here, 
all right? And uh, I used to like the WWF, and so back in my day, it was like the Bushwhackers. They walked around like this and like licked each other's heads, and it was really weird, but somehow the crowd went wild. And, uh, and then you had, you know, Hacksaw Jim Duggan and Jake the Snake Roberts and, and all these wrestlers, and you know how they did it, right? It was like, man, one guy's just going in, he's tearing up the opponent, and then the other, you know, tag team partners reaching over the ropes and, you know, shaking his hand because he's ready to come in for the match. And that's how I viewed my Christian life. Sadly enough, sadly enough, I viewed my Christian life as, hey, Jesus, I'm going to work really hard here for you, and I'm going to do everything that I can do. I'm going to read my Bible. I'm going to pray. I'm going to be obedient. And then when I need you, I'm going to tag you in. And it cannot work that way. If you are tired, if you are weary, if you are frustrated, if you are discouraged in your Christian life, there's probably a good chance that you are living your Christian life as if Jesus is your tag team partner. And you're running on a treadmill of your spiritual life and you are getting nowhere. Why? Because you are depending on you. Jesus lives in us. It's not Christ and you, it's Christ in you. You can't live the Christian life apart from Christ in you. We have to acknowledge our inability and need. And that's the first step in living a life that's powerful for God. Number three, Christ in you provides all the resources you need to glorify God. So, so Jesus says in John 15, 5, this is a great, another great verse to know. Jesus says in John 15, 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. If anyone abides in me or remains in me and I in them, he it is that bears much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And so we have to get this picture, right? Jesus is the vine. We are not the vine. He does not depend on us. He does not support us. He does not let this blow your mind. He does not need us. Jesus does not need you. He does not need me. We need him. And so this idea of Christ in us and all these resources available to us is because we are connected to Christ. He is the vine. We abide in him. And as we abide in him, we can bear fruit for God. So whatever it is in your life, I mean, I just want you to think about your week this, this past week. Jesus in you has the power to conquer any sin in your life. Your pride. Your insecurities. Your impatience with the kids or your roommate or your spouse, maybe your anger, your lust. To put it more positively, if you need wisdom, if you need perseverance, if you need joy in the task, if you need boldness to take that next step of obedience, if, if you need contentment in your life, Christ is in you. He is in you. Depend on Him and His life in you, and you can tackle any temptation that comes your way. 
God, in his mercy, has left us without excuse because he's given us every resource we need to live life for him and his glory. And so he has given us all the resources that we need. And we can rely on him and depend on him and his divine life that is in us to live for his glory this week. And then then finally, Christ in us is our hope of glory. This really isn't getting at our hope of glorifying God, which it is definitely that. It's not less than that, as we've just talked about. But when Paul says the hope of glory, he's talking about us being in the glorious presence of God. One day, we will be in the presence of God. And how do we have confidence that we will arrive there? It's through Christ in us. His work, His righteousness. When Jesus comes back and He returns and judges everyone and everything, we will be ushered into His presence because He has given us His life. We have His righteousness if we are in Christ. He is our hope of glory. This world is not glorious. I think we could all agree about that. Don't you long for something more? There is more. There is so much more in the presence of God, in the fullness of His glory, and that is a promise for us who believe in Christ. And so I pray this morning that these would not simply be words on the page, but the reality of Christ in us would would become so real, so real to us, and it would change the way that we live, starting right now. Now, we should not only marvel at this great truth that Christ is in us, but then number two, we see this in verses 28 and 29, we need to press on to maturity through Christ in us. Look again at verses 28 and 29. Paul says that we proclaim Christ, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so for Paul, Paul's message was always centered on Jesus. This is what he says over and over again. I resolve to know nothing among you except Christ and him crucified. For we do not preach ourselves, we preach Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as servants for your sake. So, so Jesus was always permeating and, and saturated everything that Paul shared with people. Why? Because in Jesus we find everything. But, but then he, he goes on to say that, that, that they warned everyone and taught everyone. So there are two aspects as we, as we share Christ with, with, with people who need him, or as we share Christ with fellow believers who need to live their life for him, we need to consistently do two things. Number one, we need to warn one another. We need to, some translations say, admonish one another. It is uh, to, to, to basically, to, to, to put it kind of in uh, some simple terms, is to say, watch out. Watch how you're living your life. This could be dangerous here. It is to say, maybe, check yourself before you wreck yourself. All right? So, so there's, this, there's this admonishment, this, this warning that we need to watch how we live 
our lives so that we can pursue godliness. But then the positive aspect of, of this is that we would then teach one another, that we would give each other positive instruction in the truths of God. And again, as we'll see later in Colossians, this task is for everyone. So I love, I love talking about this. Believers, if we're growing in our faith, we need to know the word, we need to live the word, and we need to share the word, teach the word to others. It's not enough just to know the word, okay? God is not interested in us becoming little encyclopedias of knowledge for his glory. I mean, we want to know the word inside and out. We want to, 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 to have our lives saturated with it. We can just speak it and, and quote it in conversation. I mean, that's, that's, that's definitely what we want to go after. But Jesus would say, look, if you just hear my word and don't do it, you're a fool. And so in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus would say, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, he would say, Whoever relaxes the least of my commandments uh, is going to be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them to others will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. And so it's not enough just to know the word, but we have to live God's word out. We have to practice obedience to the will of God, and then we need to share it with others. And so is this a practice in your life? I mean, is this, is this on your radar? Who are you investing in for their spiritual good? Is there anyone in your life that you are teaching the truths of God on a regular basis because you desire for them to grow in their walk with God? This is a responsibility for all of us. And the reason that we do this, and this is the goal of ministry. At the end of verse 28, he says that we may present everyone mature in Christ. So maturity doesn't have to do with our biological age or even our spiritual age, for that matter. It has to do with our progress in the faith. So someone who is mature in Christ is saying, Jesus is supreme in my life. My life no longer belongs to me. My life belongs to God. And a person who is maturing in Christ is someone who is giving their life to God in such a wholehearted way that they are growing in godliness. Maturity doesn't mean perfection. Maturity means growing in a wholeheartedly devoted way to God that we would live a godly life for His glory. And so this is why we, this is why we work. This is why we love people. This is why we engage in ministry. Ministry is for everyone. And, and how do we go about it? Well, Paul tells us in verse 29, he says, for this I toil, I mean, look at the language he uses here, this I toil, struggling with what? All his energy that he powerfully works within me. And so Paul, you get this idea that, that Paul broke a sweat for the sake of the gospel. He laid it on the line day after day after day. He struggled, he agonized so that people would know Christ and live for Christ and be found mature in Christ. He would say to us, we need to press on to maturity through Christ in you. Christ supplies the energy for us to live for God. And then finally, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, here is our, our last encouragement this morning, and that is to get acquainted with all the treasures of wisdom in Christ. Let's read these last five verses together. 
And Paul says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, so Paul here, this is, this is pretty convicting stuff, right? Paul was so given to the cause that he would struggle, he would pray, he would agonize so that people that he had never even met face-to-face would make progress in the faith. He says that he struggles for them. We, we, we know that this would be all of his life, not simply his praying, but certainly including his praying for people, that they would be, as he says here, united in love, encouraged in their hearts, knit together. Why? To reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. And so, so let's just for a minute, let's just think on what does it mean that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ? Does this mean that there is no knowledge apart from following Jesus? Yes and no, right? I mean, there are brilliant people in the world, right? Plenty of brilliant people here in greater Boston who are incredibly gifted in their field of study. Now, on the one hand, all truth is God's truth, right? Uh, But really what this text is getting at is that Christ is the one in whom is to be found all that one needs in order to understand spiritual reality and to live a life that is pleasing to God. And so I want you to think about your life, and I want you even to think about this in the context of living in what some people call the Athens of America, greater Boston. We have the, the best universities in the world, right? Some of you attend some of those universities. We see people pursuing knowledge left and right, and perhaps this is your life too. You spend a ton of time reading and studying and laboring to know your discipline. You spend hours and hours late at night. I mean, you are jacked up on caffeine and you are just going after it so that you can be maybe top in your field. And that's not a bad thing, but in all of your chasing after this knowledge and wisdom, let's ask the question, how fervently are you pursuing the inexhaustible treasures of wisdom in Christ? Do you spend time each day, each week, to go after God, to know God, to know Him in His Word, and to know Him in His Word so well that you could take all this wisdom, this knowledge applied to the glory of God, and then you could live your life for God in full assurance of faith? This is what God desires for us. And, and Paul says that he wants them to, to know the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery in Christ. Why? So that, verse 4, no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
For though I'm absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Paul wanted these Colossians to not be deceived by empty philosophies that were competing for their attention and their allegiance. And so Paul says, I want you to be firm in the faith. I want you to live for God. And how that's going to happen is you're going to know Christ and all the wisdom and the treasures of wisdom that are found in Christ and in Christ alone. And so as we wrap up our time in God's Word this morning, I want to challenge all of us to live this week. I mean, just, just make this, this is an assignment, okay? Take these truths and meditate on the fact that if you are a follower of Christ, and if you're not a follower of Christ, if you're exploring, if you're here today and you're exploring what it means to follow Christ, then by all means, we want to talk with you about that, that, that Jesus lived a perfect life. He died in your place. He rose again that you might have life. We want to, we want to speak with you about that. So please come and find uh, a leader after the service. Find me after the service. I'd love to, to chat with you about that. But if you are in Christ, then all the resources of divine power are given to you in him and so i want to close out our time in the word by giving you an encouragement here on how to maybe get at this practically and this is just a a little a little phrase another pastor came up with um, a series of 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 encouragements that spell out this word that's not really a word called aptat okay so 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 here here we go all right it's not a word but maybe you can remember because it's different um aptat all right so so this is how 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 can we live as if christ is in us day by day by day here's an encouragement number one acknowledge you cannot do it on your own god i can't deal with these kids god i'm gonna go bananas if my coworker says one more thing when i'm trying to get this project done i can't i can't do it on my own Acknowledge this. Acknowledge you can't do it on your own. Number two, pray and ask God to do it in you. Depend on Him. The life I live, I live by faith in the Son of God. Depend on Him. Trust in Him. Ask God to give you what you need to glorify Him, to persevere in whatever is before you. Number three, trust in God's promises. I mean, God has given us, this is a great promise, 2 Peter 1, 3. His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. I mean, you can just stop right there. I mean, that's enough for the, for the whole life, our whole life. Trust in the promises of God. Christ is with us. Christ is in us. He gives us all the resources we need. And then number four, act in the strength that God supplies. So we're still responsible here. It's not enough just to acknowledge that we need him and to ask God to help us and to trust in his promise, but then we actually need to act. But we act in the strength that he supplies. And then finally, thank God for his provision. So when you live your life for God's glory, it's not, look at me. Look at how great I'm living this life for God. It's, look at him. He's enabled me to live my life for his glory. And so church, Christ is in you. Let's live like he's in us this week. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the rich treasures of your word. And as we respond in song and in partaking of the Lord's Supper, Lord, I pray that you would, even now, even as we sing, just that we could acknowledge, hey, we can't even sing in our own strength. 
in a way that would glorify you. God, help us in everything to reflect this glorious reality, this glorious truth that Christ is in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.